0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word and proclaim his gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. King of Kings, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you reign over all things in heaven. And on earth and under the earth. To him be the glory, now and forever. Amen. Well, it's the 15th of March, 44 years before the birth of Christ. For the last eight years, the Roman Republic has been engaged in a war, a battle, which we now call the Gallic Wars. I want you to imagine that you're a citizen in the Roman Republic. And your greatest warrior in your republic, your greatest statesman, is a military general. And his name is not Maximus, his name is Julius Caesar. And with each military victory, Caesar rises to power. And one day, eventually, he seizes control of the republic. He anoints himself, crowns himself dictator perpetuo, or dictator for life. But as with so many kings, his kingdom was not for life. It was actually rather short-lived. On the 15th of March, 44 BC, what we now know as the Ides of March, a group of senators turn against Julius Caesar and stab him 23 times to the body. And among those senators were his best friends, including Brutus. And history at least the Roman Republic, the rule of Julius Caesar ended with the words, et tu, Brute, and you, Brutus. You know, history can be defined by the rise and fall of kings. In fact, there are as many royal tombs as there are royal thrones. If you've seen the movie The King's Speech, you'll know that it's all about a king called Edward VII. And for a king with a stutter, can I say he has some amazing quotes. Uh, Let me give you one of my favourites. This is what he says. We should be obliged to shut up a business if we, the kings, were to consider the assassination of kings as of no consequence at all. Can you hear what he's saying? Assassination, well, that's just the occupational hazard of being a king. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. For within 20 years of Julius Caesar's death, the republic falls and the empire rises. You see, the harsh reality of history is this. Kings live and die. And with them, kingdoms rise and fall. So far in the story of God, Yahweh has been Israel's king. He's been their king through covenant, a relationship sealed by agreement and promise. God has been working through Israel, in one sense, to restore this world to everything that it was meant to be. And right from the very beginning, God intended to rule over his people, not just as a king, but through a king. He would rule his people through a king, just like he ruled this world through one man, Adam. Just think about how the queen, in one sense, legally, rules over Australia, but through a governor-general or through the government of the day, or how a board will direct a company through its CEO. That's how God intends to rule his people, not just as a king, but through a king. And at their best, when Israel is everything that they are meant to be, they are God's people, living in God's kingdom, with God as their king, ruling them through a king of their own. You know, all the way back in Genesis 17, God promised to make nations and kings come from Abraham. In Deuteronomy 17, God's covenant set out the kind of king who should rule over Israel. This is the kind of king. It's a king who does not stand over God, but a king who serves under God. A king through whom God will rule over his people. And you see, that's the very question that runs right throughout the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. King after king after king, as we meet them, we wonder to ourselves, what kind of king will this be? Will this be a king who stands over God? Or will this be a king who serves under God? Because as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. You know, if this king, he serves under God, then Israel will prosper. He will be the king that God desires. And Israel will be the kingdom that God desires. There'll be a model of God's master plan for a whole new world. But if this king stands over God, if he stands against God, if he usurps God and seizes the throne, then Israel will suffer. Just like Julius Caesar and all the failed kings of history, this king will die and his kingdom will fall. In today's passage, we meet the best of Israel's kings, the very best of them. David is a man after God's own heart. He's a king chosen by God. And as we look at him, we think to ourselves, maybe, just maybe he's the one. Maybe, just maybe, he's the king who Yahweh will rule through over his people, not just for a time, but for an eternity. Maybe, just maybe, he's God's eternal king. Back in 2009, uh, a little-known senator from the state of Illinois ran for president of the United States of America. I think you might know his name. His name is Barack Obama. Uh, He ran on the slogans, change you can believe in, and that all too famous phrase, yes we can. Now, whatever you think of his politics, you can't deny that his candidacy, his run for office was unlike anything we've seen in living memory. The expectations of Obama, of this young senator, were not just sky high, not just historic, they were messianic. Let let me read to you what one young man at an Obama rally said about this young senator. Quote, he's been sent by God. I'm not saying he's Jesus, but he could fill Moses' shoes. Wow. I mean, in Australia, I don't think you'd ever find any of us saying anything like that about our political leaders. But it's remarkable, isn't it? That such great expectations can be placed on just one man. That is the position in which we find King David here in 2 Samuel 7. He is at the apex of power. He is at at the heights of expectation. And our big question as we look at him is this Will power corrupt this king? Will he continue to serve under God for the good of the kingdom? Or will he be like Julius Caesar? Will he be tempted to stand over and against God? Will he be tempted to seize the throne for himself? Will he be tempted to declare himself dictator perpetuo, dictator for life? Because as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Act 7, kingship. Let's begin by looking at David's words. Well, David, he's enjoying peak power. It doesn't get much better than this. In verse one, he settles into his palace and God, Yahweh, has given him rest on every side from all his enemies. God has fulfilled his every promise to David and through David. Do you remember last week? God gave Joshua rest on every side after he conquered the promised land. Well, now this week, God is giving David the same thing. Rest on every side after he is crowned king over Israel, king under God. My, my God, gosh, this is Israel at its greatest. This is like the Roman Republic at its peak. The Han Dynasty of China, the Choson Dynasty of Korea. These are Israel's glory days. David, he he just settled Jerusalem as the capital of the kingdom. He secured his power base. And now he says to the prophet Nathan, Nathan, I live in this palace, but look at God. He lives in a tent. Let me build a house for God. Now, in the ancient Near East, a conquering king would build a temple to honor the God of his victory. So I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, right, David's heart, David's suggestion, we read it and think to ourselves, what a great idea. Spiritually, David is putting Yahweh first. He is giving God the glory. And politically, well, there's no points to lose there. He's uniting Israel around God. He's securing God's presence and he's securing God's blessings. Just imagine for a moment that Tomorrow, one of you guys at church gives me a ring. And you say this to me, Adam, look, I've just bought my first home. It's looking great. But you know what? When I bought our first home, I looked at our church and said, gosh, we're just nomads wandering around a school gym. Let me buy a church building for Cross and Crown. It could happen. Can you guess how I would respond? Well, you'd be pleased to know if it's any comfort that I will retell you exactly what the prophet Nathan tells David. Right there in verse three, I would say to you, go, go and do all that is on your mind for the Lord is with you. You see, for David is so powerful, his idea so seemingly righteous that Nathan pretty much says, knock yourself out, do your worst, do whatever you want. Now, we need to understand that generally speaking, prophets and kings don't get along. Nine out of 10 times when a king sees a prophet, it means that he's standing over God, against God and not serving under God. And God has sent this prophet to call that king back to serve under him. But here in 2 Samuel 7, no, our prophet has no problem with our king. They're perfectly on the same page. And that means one of two possibilities. Either our king has got it very right or our prophet has got it very wrong. But from all that we can see here, it at least looks like that, well, our king has got it very right. I mean, he just, he wants to build a house for God. As far as we can tell, David is a king who serves under God. Or so we think. Because now, we are perfectly set up to feel the shock of what God is going to reply in verses 4 to 17. You see, in verses 4 to 17, God does three things. He rebukes David's sin. He reminds him of his place. And he reaffirms his promise. He rebukes David's sin, reminds him of his place, and reaffirms his promise. Uh, Look at what God says in verse 5. I love this. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? I don't know about you, but it's not exactly the reply I was expecting. It's it's almost like, you know, out of the kindness of your heart, you think, you know what, I'm going to buy a birthday present for my parents. So you buy, you spend a good amount of money on it, and you come home and give it to your parents and go, happy birthday. And the first reply is, why did you waste your money? It sounds like that's what God's saying, isn't it? And, and it feels a bit rude. I mean, to be honest, you read it and think, well, God, if you didn't like it, a simple no thanks would have done fine. Well, what is David's sin that deserves such rebuke? I think it's right there at that word repeated three times in verses five to seven. Let me read it. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. Let me paraphrase what Yahweh is saying to David. I don't need a house. I never asked for a house because I don't live in a house. I created this whole world and no building can contain me. And don't you dare try. You know, in 2 Chronicles 2, King David, King Solomon, David's very own son, will ask this question. Who is able to build a temple for God? Get this, since even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. Friends, can you see David's sin? David wants to build this house, not to honor God, but to control him, to contain him. He wants to tie down God's presence for his own political gain. This is what David's thinking. If I can contain God's presence, then I can control God's blessings. For as long as Yahweh dwells in Jerusalem, then I will remain king. David is seeking to manipulate God for his own glory. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Yahweh said that he would be the one to decide the place of his worship. And it would be a place where God not dwells, but where his name dwells. That means it would be a place not where he lives, but where he is worshipped. But now along comes King David, not submitting under God's will, but in fact, he is bending God's will to his. He is standing as king over his God, not serving as king under his God. He is deciding where God will dwell. And he is deciding it not for God's glory, but for his own good. Friends, this is nothing but pure paganism. To bend our will, no, to bend God's will to ours. To not submit our will under his. To use God instead of being used by him. You know, every year when I go back to Southeast Asia, I see this on full display. Families and friends just building altars in their homes, offering oranges for these so-called pagan gods to eat. Why? It's not because they love them. It's to manipulate them into blessing them. To build an altar in your home to contain your pagan god. So you'll think to yourself, if I can tie down this God, I can tie down its blessings. As long as this God, this idol, this statue lives in my house, then it will protect my family. Friends, that's nothing more than divine manipulation. And that is exactly what King David is doing. Pious on the outside, pagan on the inside. Pious in form, pagan in substance. God rebukes David's sin and now he reminds David of his place. In verses 8 to 11, God reminds David not once, but seven times who is, the re- who is really the king. God alone is king. Let me draw out the emphasis of these verses. This is what he says. It is I who took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people. It is I who have been with you wherever you've gone. And it is I who have destroyed all your enemies before you. Chris, can you hear what God is saying? David, you keep talking about what you'll do for me. But in reality, you know, it's just all really for you. But you are not the king and I am not your servant. I don't know if you remember or if you've forgotten, but it is I who am your king and it is you who are my servant. That's why throughout this passage, God never calls David king. In verse 8, he calls him my servant. And then he says, I took you to be ruler, not king. That means prince over my people. Not a king over God, but a prince under God. David, don't forget who you are. And don't forget who I am. I'm the king who decides the fate of my people, not you. I am the king who fulfills my promises to them, not you. And talking about fulfilling promises, take a look. It is I who promised to make Abraham's name great. And look at verse 9. Who is it? It's I who will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. It is I who promised Moses to plant Israel in a place that I prepared for them. And who is it again? Look at verse 10. It's I who will designate a place for my people, Israel, and plant them. And I'm the one who promised Joshua uh, rest for Israel on every side. And look at verse 11. There it is again. It's I who will give you rest from all your enemies. Mate, don't you get it? I'm the king of Israel, not you. So stop standing as king over me. Stop trying to contain me. Stop trying to control me. Stop trying to box and manipulate me. I've blessed you with so much. I took you from nothing and made you prince over my people. I made you a king who serves under me. Is that not enough? David, you want to build a temple to tie me down because you're so afraid that I might leave you. But look at verse 9. I've been with you wherever you've gone. So, so please, please don't patronize me. Please don't build me a temple and say that it's all for me when it's in reality all for you. No, that, that's like a wife buying her husband a gift, not as an expression of her love, but as a tool of control. No, in these verses, God rebukes David's sin and reminds him of his place. David is not a king who stands over God. He is a king who serves under him. And what a reminder for us. We do not stand over our God. We serve under him. And now, in verses 7 to 16, God shifts gear. He moves from revealing sin to reaffirming promise. I love how you can sum up this in top. what's going on here, right? David says to God, I'll build a house for you. And God says, You build a house for me, no, I build a house for you. I'll build a dynasty for you. I'll build a family of kings for you. You see, David, you're so afraid that you might lose my blessing. You're so afraid that you might lose your throne. Well, guess what? I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to establish your throne forever the very blessing that you want to force from me is the very blessing that I'm just going to give you freely. You know, just like any man, one day you will die. But though you die, your kingdom will live on. Because in verse 12, I will raise up after you, your descendant who will come from your body. And this child, he'll do what you plan to do, but he'll do it right. He'll build a house not for me to dwell in. He'll build a house where my name will be worshipped. He will be a king who rules under me, not a king who stands over me. He'll be the king that I always intended. In fact, he'll represent me so perfectly that I will be his father and he will be my son. And I will love him so much that when he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. You see, that might not sound like love, but it's a love that will never give up and a love that will never let go. I will love this child so much that he will be my chosen king forever and ever and ever. Three times in these verses does God promise forever. History can be defined as the rise and fall of kings. But unlike Julius Caesar, Edward VII, or Barack Obama, or choose your king or ruler, no, this king will live and never die. His kingdom will rise and never fall. And through this eternal king, God will bring about eternal peace, eternal rest, and eternal hope, a world free from disease, from disaster, from death, not just for a hundred years between the Spanish flu and the coronavirus. No, he will bring about security forever. God's people will dwell in God's kingdom with God as their king, not just for a few years, not even for a few decades or a few centuries, but for an eternity. But because of this king, they will be his people forever and ever and ever. And, you know, if you flick throughout the rest of the Old Testament, well, we watch and we wait We meet king after king after king and we ask ourselves each and every time, is this the one? Is this the son of God? Is this the child of David? Is this God's eternal king? And then one day, 1,000 years later, an angel appears to a young girl in the city of Nazareth and this is what he says to her. You, Mary, will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called, here it is, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the son of God. This is the child of David. Unlike any of Israel's kings, when he suffers, it will not be because of his sin. He will suffer as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Julius Caesar won the Gallic Wars and became dictator perpetuo, but only for a while. No, Jesus won the war over death. And that means he alone is king who reigns forever and ever and ever. You know, if you've been here at Cross and Crown for longer than five seconds, you would have heard verbatim that phrase that we long to see every tribe worship Christ as King. But why King? Why not Saviour, brother or friend? King, it's such a strong term, so robust in your face. Can't we just be a little bit softer, a little bit kinder? Well, friends, Jesus is our saviour, our brother and our friend, but none of those are truer than who he is as our king. Because as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. If Jesus is not the eternal king, then there is no kingdom, no people, no future and no hope. But because he is, we are an eternal people. And we have an eternal hope. God promised to rule his people through a king. And friends, can you see that king is the Lord Jesus Christ? As we close, I want to suggest two implications for us as we live in our part of God's story. Firstly, do not seek to control the Lord. Do not seek to control the Lord. When we read David's words in verses 1 to 3, weren't we all on his side, right? And it's as if the author deliberately blurs David's true motives. For in David's heart, we see a reflection of our own hearts, a mixture of the sinner and the saint, a mixture of the holy and the unholy. On the outside, well, we live in a way that looks faithful. We make decisions that look godly. But on the inside, all we're really trying to do is to control God and to use him for our own glory. Our hearts, right, are this strange mix of the pious and the pagan. We all know it and we all feel it. Instead of serving under God in our hearts, we want to stand over God and we want to use him to serve us. Instead of submitting our wills to God's, no, we seek to bend His will to ours. And here's the tricky thing. It'll always look godly on the outside. It'll always look faithful on the outside. It'll look as faithful and godly and pious as let me build a house for the Lord. It will have a form of godliness, but it will actually deny its power. So... We profess to glorify God in our work, but we're actually using that as an excuse to cover over our ungodly ambition. As a way of running from real ministry, we say, no, the the workplace is my mission field. But you know the only reason why we're saying that is because we want to dodge our real responsibility. Or uh, we stay on and persist in a relationship that we know is not pleasing to God, but we keep telling ourselves it'll get better It'll get better. It'll get better. I'm doing this as a means to serve and reach them with the gospel. Or we commit to giving 10% of our income to gospel ministry. But actually, well, all we're trying to do is keep 90% for ourselves. When we think about who we might read the Bible with, our minds immediately go for the people who are our best mates. And we say, it's because I want to grow them in godliness. But actually, it's really just because we don't want to read with anyone else and would much rather hang out with people that we naturally get along with. Isn't it so much easier to not stretch and reach someone else? Do you realize how deceitful our hearts can be? How finely mixed our motivations can be? Friends, I've been personally challenged by this as we make decisions for the future of our church. And just like David, it's so easy to attempt great things for God, but expect great things for, well, me to confuse the growth of our church with the growth of God's kingdom. And so I wonder, is, is my heart for the lost, motivated by a desire to see them saved, or is it driven by an ambition to claim credit for their conversion? Is my heart for a caring church family motivated by a genuine love for one another? Or, do I say we want to be a caring church family where people know each other? Is, am I saying that simply because I just want us to be comfortable? I want this to be a place where I feel comfortable and no one else to feel comfortable. Do we serve the pleasure of our king or do we seek the approval of the crowd? Or worse still, are we playing our king to pander to the crowd? Friends, God will not be used. He will not be manipulated and he will not be controlled. He is our king and we are his servants. Do not seek to control the Lord. Do not stand over him. Serve under him. Secondly, rest in the eternal king. Rest in the eternal king. You see, God promises to establish his eternal kingdom through his eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means, no matter how bad our world will look on the outside, I want you to know that there is never a moment of human history that is not under the sovereign care of King Jesus. Julius Caesar died. Edward VII died. Barack Obama and all the kings and presidents of this world will one day die. But Jesus lives forever. And our everlasting King gives us everlasting hope. If you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, or you've kind of been at church but then dropped away for a while and starting to come back and figure things out again, I want to ask you this question. Who do you put your hope in? You might not have a royal king over you, but surely you trust in someone or something to be king of your heart and king of your life. I want you to know, whatever you trust in, could be others or it could be yourself. All of us will one day die. None of us can secure the eternal hope that only Jesus can give. Turn to him. Trust in him. Cast your hope on him. For he alone will give you a hope and a life that extends beyond our lives. In the second round of lockdown, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling pretty deflated. I'm feeling pretty demoralized and just a little bit hopeless. You know, as you watch those numbers, uh, COVID case numbers rise and rise and rise, go from 400, then back to 200, and you think, oh, we're okay, then it goes up to 300 again. Isn't it so easy to despair at everything that has changed? Our world has changed, our jobs have changed, our lives have changed. But, friends, I want you to know that for all that may have changed, actually, some things have not changed, some things will never change. Jesus will never change. He is the eternal king. His rule has not changed. His reign has not changed. His power has not changed. His kingdom has not changed. His mission has not changed. Actually, though it may not seem like it, far, far more in our world has actually not changed than change because Jesus is in control of all things. Do not fixate on what is passing Temporary and ephemeral. It will only ever increase your anxiety and your fear. No, focus on what is lasting, on what is unfailing, and what is eternal. Focus on who is lasting, unfailing, and eternal. For he alone will strengthen your courage and your faith. I get it. If there's any time to be anxious and fearful, it's now. And if that's you, and that's a genuine fear, and that's a well-founded fear and anxiety, I want you to know that God comforts us in all our afflictions. Just read 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies. But I also want you to know, don't forget, Jesus is the eternal King. And some of our fear may be well-founded. But the truth is, I suspect that for some of us, some of our fears and anxieties actually betray the kingship of Christ. And can I gently suggest that some of us may actually need to repent of our fear? Did you notice, do not be afraid is not a lifestyle suggestion, it's a command. You and I, we have an eternal king and nothing will ever take him off his throne. Do not be afraid. For as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And our king over us, he reigns forever and ever and ever. Act 7, kingship. Let's pray. King of kings, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you reign over all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.